Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey, Data Nation, I really enjoyed this next conversation where it's a little less technical and we talk about transportation modeling in Uber autonomous vehicles with Matt Badaferrano. Matt is a data scientist focusing in transportation modeling. He first started his career as a data scientist at a startup called Burjay, where they created a smart microbus platform for urban transportation. Similar to Uberpool, currently he's working towards his PhD at Carnegie Mellon at their Mobility Data Analytics Center. Matt, welcome to the show. Awesome. Oh, thanks. It's good to be here. Just jumping straight in, can you share a little bit more about your previous experience and how you ended up at the Mobility Data Analytics Center at Carnegie Mellon? Sure. I grew up in New York City, and that has really... It, growing up in that environment, transportation always made sense to me, especially thinking about transportation as a system, not necessarily something like you get in your car and you end up at the place you want to go. It was always much more of a collaborative experience, a very an experience with the network of transportation rather than a mode of transportation. So you would going to school, you'd get on the subway, you'd get on the bus, you would walk. And, and I ne- didn't really think about this too much growing up because it was just my normal day to day. When I went to college, I was really interested. I wasn't thinking about that at all. And I studied mathematics and I minored in computational neuroscience. And what drew me to computational neuroscience was this idea that you could take something super complex, like the brain, and you could try to understand it using mathematical models. And at the time, my first, when I first heard about this, I was like, that's, that's ridiculous. The brain is so complicated. I was there, I was in the lab for about two years. And the thing that I love doing was I, a colleague of mine and I, we would read like machine learning papers on the side. He was working through pattern recognition, machine learning, the book by Christopher Bishop. And I was trying to follow along and think about how could I apply this to my work in the lab. And there's substantial overlap at the time, also learning. We mostly worked in MATLAB, but I was learning a lot of Python at the time. And so these two interests grew hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And I started looking for how can I, what can I do that would really enable me to work on these two skills together? Something that I was just following my interests. And out of the blue, I found out about this company called Bridge that was trying to make, trying to optimize transportation. So they were proposing something in the middle of a taxi service and like a mass transit, like a fixed route bus service. And the idea was there's so much data about mobility in cities now, and we should be able to predict where people are going and what trips are happening at at all times of the day. 
And we should be able to use that information in real time to serve more trips with fewer vehicles. And we should be able to do this by routing these vehicles somewhat on the fly, by reading in signals from the city, estimating where people would want to travel, and then putting a bus where it would be useful. And so a bus in this context would be like, like a, we were aiming for a 12 to 15 passenger van, and we had these vans running around. Anyway, so I eventually did join this company. And at my time there spanned from just after they had started putting vehicles on the road. So it was a really exciting time where they had gone from let's get just let's get vehicles on the road. We didn't even have an app yet. We they, they were like let's just get this experiment rolling and we'll learn on the fly and, and build up everything that we want out of that. And I was with them until until we ran out of funding. We weren't able to and this happens to a lot of startups, but we just weren't able to hit the right target at the right time. And fortunately though for the idea, the the like the intellectual property and, and the name was bought up by this Australian company. And so it still exists actually in Australia and it's doing quite well from my vantage point of a <laughs> far away. But the main challenge that we, it was, we had two main things that I was a part of, two main efforts that I was a part of when I was at Bridge. And the first was how do we understand demand? And we have all this information about the city. We can measure a lot of things. We have a lot of data. How can we, what's our best guess given all of the data about what trips are happening at what times? A day. So if you if you're a bus and you're saying where should I go to get the the highest probability of someone wanting to ride a bus, where would you go? And the second part was how do we put those demands together in a way that makes routing efficient? So you can think about this as this is very similar to the problem that like, for example, Uber pool might face mm -hmm. or FedEx and UPS, You've, you know, UPS has a lot of trucks, they have a lot of depots and they need to figure out what packages are going on what trucks, how many trucks to a depot, what are the routes of the trucks? And all of that is aimed at, re at reducing or minimizing some kind of cost that they have. And so we were doing the same, basically the same idea. You have a fleet of vehicles. We want to deliver passengers in a timely manner, and we want to do so in a way that sort of is like least cost. And so that is an optimization problem. And the first is more of a machine learning problem, but they work together to drive efficiency in the system. And I got to the end of my time there and I was, had learned a ton because not only had I learned this stuff about machine learning to get to solve some of these or to address some of these problems about you know, demand, I was also involved in a team that was aimed more at understanding our current operational metrics. We were still running buses, even though they weren't, we weren't all the way to where we wanted to be. And so we were trying to make small course corrections along the way to improve the efficiency of the service while we're also making larger improvements in this sort of optimization and prediction system. And so and is, it, I was, is this pre-Uber and Lyft? So it's interesting. This is uh, sort of, this is contemporaneous with Uber Pool, actually. They came out about around the same time, which was a blessing and a curse because it, it made the business a lot easier to explain, which is also a bad thing. So it's like, okay, if it's Uber Pool for buses, then... right what's the what's the the value add but and i do just, think yeah 
from a um, size perspective, how many buses were you running at one time? And I guess what's the user count using the app? Or- yeah, I actually don't remember, uh, unfortunately. It was, we were running at the time, we, we launched in Boston and D.C. and Kansas okay. City. And the Kansas City was actually an interesting experiment because it was it happened in conjunction with the transportation agency in Kansas City. So a public-private partnership. How would you describe the current landscape of transportation network systems today? I would say, so when we talk about transportation network modeling, what we're really talking about is the looking at the big picture of transportation, typically at the city or regional level. And when you're talking about transportation network modeling, you're typically referring to using mathematical, statistical, or computer models that are aimed at understanding this sort of big picture. And a lot of, so the landscape is quite broad. And the reason why this is simply because transportation touches on like a wide variety of, like pretty much everything in your life has something to do with transportation. And so you can think about logistics networks. You can think about, so that would be what FedEx and UPS are dealing with, what Amazon is dealing with when they decide to build a warehouse, where they locate it. Of course, on the flip side of this, there's also regional planners. So these are typical, these are typically government agencies that are responsible for maintaining five, 10, 15, 30 year plans for the transportation infrastructure of a region. And so they're concerned with what roads am I maintaining? When? What roads am I building? Am I building bike infrastructure? Am I expanding parking? Am I expanding development, which will increase traffic on a corridor? And so all of this stuff is really tied together for a a planning agency, less so for a logistics company. You also have now these, a lot of emerging technology that's coming or that has come online. Is there a particular city in the U.S. or maybe outside the U.S. that does a good job at um, and transportation planning? That's a good question. I, I don't know if I know. Yeah, I don't know if I, I know that they. It's tough. Overall, you know, if you ask the American Society for Civil Engineers, they very they have a very low ranking of U.S. road infrastructure, yeah. and general trans- general infrastructure, but right. particularly roads and bridges and, and so on. So it's tough because you know the the average person, the average user of a transportation network, they only notice when things go poorly, mm-hmm. and until that and sort of when enough people notice that things are going poorly. It's typically well past the lifetime, the the sort of expected lifetime of the infrastructure, which makes it a really difficult problem. You're like, why should we spend all of this money on roads when no one's complaining about the roads? And it's, it's, so it's a difficult problem to do well because these things require looking out. This is a benefit that's going to be spread out over the next 30 years. Are you aware, are governments, do they have particular, I'm sure they do, but I guess what are the types of sensors or capturing data to understand their current transportation state? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there, there are many, I, the ones that I would point to are something called loop detectors, which are implanted in the road and they count, they just count cars that, Mm -hmm. that 
that pass over them. And that is uh, a pretty common tool. One that's more, and that's been around for a while. The technology for that is, is pretty, it's, it's been around for a while. Those are, I guess those are the ones you see when you're driving on the road and maybe a black box sitting on the side and you run over a strip. It was more like they a work. version of that. Yeah. So that one will typically be for when in preparation for road work, they really need to understand what the traffic is like on this road. So they'll set that up. But these are ones that are actually built into the, the pavement itself. So okay. you can't, you don't necessarily even know that they're happening or that, that they're there when you, when you drive over. But this, yeah, they do exactly the same thing. Another sort of more recent technique, and I'm not really sure how widely this is used, but there have been some interesting examples of this is using computer vision to count cars from a video camera. So, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of municipalities will have traffic cameras that are publicly accessible. And I don't know if anyone has actually done this with traffic cameras. I don't, I, they, they might be, I just don't specifically know. But one, one interesting data set that has come out over the past few years is someone put a camera on a drone and hovered the drone over a stretch of highway for some amount of time. And they actually counted the precise position of all the vehicles that pass through the segment of highway for the entire duration of it. And they used, so obviously they use computer vision to figure out, okay, this is a car, this is a truck, this is where it's going, this is its trajectory across the highway. And that's really interesting because it allows a much finer understanding of how vehicles are moving across the highway. Whereas if you have a loop detector or a traffic counter or something like that, just tells you there are this many vehicles in this lane. And it doesn't tell you anything about how they're moving along the highway. Mm-hmm. So there's, and of course, another interesting application is, or example at a different level is, is the easy pass system. So this makes it very easy to count traffic. Obviously you have to have equipped with, a, with an easy pass and that is only at, as far as I know, at, at tolling plazas, but it's also a very effective way, especially now in, in Pennsylvania and, and maybe other places, what they've done is they've done away with the, the toll booths completely. And now it's just a stretch of highway with some equipment up top and you go through at speed or you should people still slow down because of what's going on. But the idea is you can go through at speed. So it doesn't affect the flow of traffic on the highway. And they're able to either toll your easy pass or they capture the license plate and toll via mail. So they're getting some information at specific from that as well. Lastly, another interesting sort of, and this is more of like a future direction mm-hmm. is autonomous vehicles. Okay. So actually before autonomous vehicles, there are, companies out there who try to estimate traffic flow or or traffic speed. So Google Maps obviously is one of them. There are many other companies in this vein. Inrix is another one. And what they do this by using vehicles, every time you are in a vehicle and you're running Google Maps, your data is being used to estimate the traffic conditions around it. So you are in, in the language of transportation research, you are a probe vehicle. You are a sensor on the road that's collecting speed information, potentially other information as well. And so you can develop a, if you have access, if you have a lot of probe vehicles, Mm -hmm. then you have a very good sense of what speed is like on your road network at any given time. And so if you take this one step further to autonomous vehicles, which are collecting a lot of information about their surroundings, not just speed, then you can use those as probe vehicles and you can try to gain information about what is happening on your road network. 
And so that's I went from the most basic to the most future looking in terms of how you can measure these things, measure the state of traffic on your road network. So right now you're studying at Mobility Data Analytics mm-hmm. Center on the Carnegie Mellon. But previously you worked two internships with Uber kind of in this Mm -hmm. space? So when I was working at Uber ATG, which is their autonomous vehicle, autonomous vehicle division, which has since been purchased by Aurora, which is another autonomous uh, vehicle company, I was working on the strategy team, which sort of broadly is, is their goal is to figure out what's ahead. And so in general, the, the big question that Uber ATG is facing is how do you make autonomous vehicles work as Uber vehicles? And this is, I don't feel like that's anything mind blowing because you know, if you're developing autonomous vehicles for Uber, that is the, your goal is to integrate them with the rest of Uber. There are no autonomous vehicles currently running anywhere on public roadways in fully autonomous mode. And so the goal you want to reach cannot be measured empirically. So it's not like this is outside the realm of where you want to be as a data scientist, where let's say you're at a a tech company and you want to test a new feature. You can do an an A-B test or, or what have you. You can put a little bit out into the world of your new feature and see how it does. And the risks of that are extremely low because maybe it's a terrible feature and there's a small fraction of users that you're diverting to your experiment and a s- even smaller fraction of users that you're diverting to the like alternative design that you're trying to test. Right. And maybe those users experience a like negative interaction. But the risk there is the page takes longer to load or they decide to go elsewhere. And it's a, it's a low risk. You can control the risk very to the, the company's bottom line. That is blown out of the water when you're talking about autonomous vehicles. There's no way to like reasonably do a full-on like AB style test with like regular taxi service versus autonomous taxi service because it's just too it's just too dangerous. The risk is too high. So you're already outside of this realm of being able to you know collect data and analyze it. So what you have to do is you you have to come up with a, a reasonable way of answering a counterfactual question. What if we did this, what would happen? And so that requires, there are many ways to do that, of course. The one that is top of mind in transportation is, is a simulation. You say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna create a little model environment and I'm going to change something in the model environment and observe what happens to my model environment. And hopefully I can make some claim about what would happen in the real world if I did something similar. And so that was the flavor of what I was doing at the internship, which is how can we understand what these sort of counterfactual scenarios, because we can't actually do any real world experiments. Mm-hmm. What are the, the main challenges or gaps today that you see that's really holding back autonomous vehicles? I think that one, one thing that, that I think about when I think about autonomous vehicles in general is how... We imagined flying cars at one point and we got helicopters and helicopters are very useful, but they're not this sort of like wild, fantastical thing that a flying car, they do the same things, but they do them under like very different 
circumstances and you have different requirements to go into. It's not like driving a car at all. I don't say, I don't fly helicopters. So I don't know, but I imagine they're very different. So I, I wonder about the same thing happening with autonomous vehicles. And you can see this with a lot of technology. I, I don't know if you remember the, the moment when everyone like went wild over Google glass and everyone's Google glass is going to be everywhere. It's going to be awesome. Like people are going to be wearing them all the time. And that went away. And, but it turns out that there was a really good application for Google Glass. It just happened to be in like industrial manufacturing where you could overlay information about the, the system you're working on for technicians to, to, to do better work, to help them in their jobs. And so you had this like, this idea of this technology being the future. And it was actually the future, but it was just for in a very, in a different use case than perhaps we imagined. There's, you know, I think. In the same thing for autonomous vehicles, when people say driverless cars, you have this image of you're going to own them. They're going to be like your normal car, but it's going to drive itself. And I think that's still absolutely possible, but there's some significant headwinds to that happening. And it maybe there is the case that there is a easier problem that autonomous vehicles will solve where they will excel in that area. And that will be really what happens to autonomous vehicles. And I think people are still trying to figure out what is that, what is that area? Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of work in this in academia to figure out how, under what conditions could you, would, would it be plausible for people to own their own autonomous vehicles? What sort of, what is the enabling technology for that? What is the, what are the effects of that versus maybe renting out an autonomous vehicle or using it as part of a service? Mm -hmm. There's also a school of thought of a lot of people now are working on autonomous trucks and have been for some time. And so there, there are, there, there are different ways to imagine autonomy. And of course, autonomous aircraft as well have been around for a while. And if you, there is an Amazon plan to have a bunch of drones delivering your packages and yep. stuff like that. And so there's, there's all different ways that autonomy can be leveraged within transportation. And so I would, to come back to this, to the, the gap that I see is precisely like, what is the, what will the role be for autonomous vehicles? And I think that is a gap in understanding and imagination of what actually is this technology best suited to do. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good, it's a good question. It's nice to think about. I can navigate to anywhere and just, um, those autonomous not have to drive or have my eyes on the wheel but then that really begs the question what does that do to the other modes of transportation does that increase cars on the road if people aren't flying because maybe it's easier um, yeah that is actually an area of intense research that's going on right now to try to figure out what happens if we are using autonomous if everyone tomorrow had I mean, obviously this is totally fantastical but just as a thought experiment like if if tomorrow you, everyone woke up and they had an autonomous vehicle in their driveway, what would happen? What would people figure out that they actually wanted to do? One of the things that I have thought about in this vein is to look at how, what changed when the car got introduced. So here in Pittsburgh, there's this, like this transportation, evolution of transportation within Pittsburgh is actually fascinating. And it, it applies to other places as well. But since I'm in Pittsburgh, that's the thing that I decided to look at. And before streetcars, so like mid 1800s, maybe early, earlier 1800s, most people walked to work. And this meant that that dictated like where you lived. So if you worked in the steel mill, you would live 
near this within walking distance of the steel mill. If you worked in the banks downtown, you would live within walking distance of the banks downtown. And so this one like dictated living patterns and residential patterns, but it also interestingly, like there was a lot more like diversity and in income within a given geographical area because you all had to live together. There was no, you know, that was how you did it, right? If you wanted to to live further away, you had an awful commute and you'd want to live close within walking distance of where you wanted to work. So the, what happened then is the railroads started to come in and we had the advent of commuter railroads, which were still very expensive, which were very expensive, but it, it led to the first round of suburbanization. And by suburbanization, it's like the suburbs then are actually within the city limits of Pittsburgh today. And they are within many cities, but you got there by train. Streetcars, public transportation exacerbated this trend. People started living in different places further out and then cars exploded this trend. And that's what led to the development of what we now call suburbs. And that corresponded very nicely with this decrease in cost to travel. It took you less time and this is very simple, but it took you less time so you could live further out. And so if you follow this trend with autonomous vehicles and you own them in this, how does that change land use patterns? Do we start to look really far apart? So there's been a lot of, and, and with airline travel as well, are short flights going away because you can take a nap while your car. Wrapping up, what's been your biggest lesson learned since building out AI and machine learning solutions? I would say two, two things. One is that to keep everything as simple as you need it to be to work. I think that can be very useful in a lot of different circumstances, both in, in industry, but also in, in academia. You don't want to make, you don't want to spend a lot of upfront effort to make something that ends up not really working as well as you thought it would. So I think this goes hand in hand with use the data storage. That's the simplest that you need it to be. Maybe that's most of the time in academia, that's just a bunch of CSVs or a bunch of JSON files just on disk because it doesn't need to be more than that. They love it. Iterate and keep it super simple. The, the second thing though, and this is a little bit harder to do is to really learn, I guess, the history of methods in, in AI and ML, because when you learn the, the, the history, it tells you why did this, what problem were the people who proposed this method trying to solve? And I think this does, and then also why that, why did they, why did they choose to, to, why did they create the thing that they actually created? How was that better than what existed? What did they, what was fundamentally different? What was different enough about their problem setting that necessitated a different solution? And what this will help you to do is counteract the trend within data science, which is to, which is not a bad trend at all. But if you think about like how scikit-learn works, it's great. You have, there's one API that you need to learn. It's data, labels, run the thing, you're done. What that obscures is the fact that not all methods can be applied the same way to the same, to, to like different data sets. So the API is the same, whether you have text data or transportation data, or it doesn't matter. The API is the same, which is great, but it obscures the fact that these different solutions 
were created for different purposes to solve different problems. And that can make it really difficult when you're starting out to justify why am I doing this versus something else? What is actually the simplest thing I can do in this scenario? And so you will start to learn why these things are created, what problems they solve, and also what these methods ask of your data. And that will make, I think that has helped me navigate this massive field of machine learning and AI. And if you don't have a way to navigate the space, everything you're just like, why isn't there just one thing? And you, right. if you pick at random, it's you're going to get lost. I completely agree. And I think that applies outside of just machine learning and AI in general. Any across the whole IT industry, as you're looking at different tools, what's their intention? Why? What's the reason this was built for? And mm-hmm. Especially now, I mean, it's so easy to market a tool for doing A, B, and C, but it's really only meant to do A. And just reading the docs and looking at the underlying purpose of it. I think it's critical to understand. That certainly applies to like databases mm-hmm. in general. Like, I don't know at the, like this, when I was starting to work at Bridge, this was like the time that MongoDB came out and like all these other, like no SQL was like the big thing. And okay. it was like, trash your SQL database. You don't need it. It's all about like document storage. And the truth was like, there was a very specific purpose for the, which mm-hmm. these were, tools are built and they excelled at those purposes. But that didn't mean that you needed to use it in every case. And in fact, many times it was better to use a different tool. So it's not that they were, these tools are great, but you have to be able to say that these were created for a specific purpose. So yeah, I agree that it definitely applies outside of ML. Yeah. Awesome. What's next for AI? Where do you see the industry going two to five years really quickly? Yeah, I think the biggest direction I see has to do with AI ethics. And I think that there's been a lot of talk about AI ethics in a variety of different ways. And I'm not like an expert on this or up to date on this, but the the thing that, that I have been thinking about recently is when you run machine learning, you get a number and it tells you something about your data and maybe something about the method. What you actually want is it to tell you something about the real world, about the process that generated your data. And or not even necessarily the process of generating data, but the, the thing that, that you got your data from, the real world system that you are observing through your data collection process. And those two things aren't necessarily the same. And this goes back to understanding what the method is asking of your data. If, if the method is asking something of your data that you actually didn't follow during your data collection process, mm-hmm. then you can't faithfully say or ethically say that the result I got from my model or my machine learning or technique, AI, whatever, actually says something meaningful about the underlying world. And I think that is that to me is an ethical problem with the application of machine learning AI. And I think that this gets more difficult to address the easier ML and AI are to use. Now, it used to be you needed to actually understand, you needed to read the paper and code it up from scratch. Okay, that's no longer, you just need to know how to use Python or R and you have all these methods built in ready to use. And even that isn't necessary anymore because you have cloud-based ML and AI solutions. So you do really complicated things and really awesome things without any really underlying expertise, which is on one level, fantastic. It just, it makes the easy things easier, but it doesn't actually make the hard things any easier. And this is also a problem in science 
when people are talking about like the reproduce reproducibility crisis and like p-value hacking. It's to me the same thing. You're using this method, the statistical method, and you aren't paying close enough attention to make sure that the process you are using is compatible with requirements of the statistical thing that you're doing. And that results in just invalid conclusions. And like scientists are making this mistake and they're trained to do this. And so this mistake will almost certainly happen in when other people who are not trained statisticians, who are not trained scientists, will certainly make the same mistake in their AI and ML systems. And so I think that from that perspective, that I think is something that is starting to be addressed in a variety of ways, but we'll continue to see more emphasis on that. How do we make sure these claims we're making as a result of AI and ML actually apply to the underlying real world system that they're trying to describe? Do you have a favorite data book that you recommend? I do. I really enjoyed reading uh, this book called Smart Cities. I think the subtitle is Big Data, Civic Hackers, and like a, a new, hold on, I have it written down, and the, the, quest for, the Quest for a New Utopia. It's by Anthony Townsend. And the thing that I liked about that book is it gave a both a historical and a technological account mm-hmm. of different ingredients for smart cities. And so it, it looks at both developments in computer science and developments in the like the the philosophy, if you will, of urban design and urban planning. And I felt that was a really good illustration of how like what we're thinking about now, what are these ideas that are are popular now, specifically with this integration of computers and urban planning, but really more broadly, like this idea of ubiquitous computing or like Internet of Things or like computers permeating all of society. Obviously, the book is more about cities, but I think the lessons apply more broadly, but it really ties together both the technological thinking and the urban planning thinking about how this works. And it, it gives you the origins of all of these ideas, which are popular now. Awesome. I'll have to check that one out. And then to wrap up, where can our listeners reach out to you if they want to learn more and connect? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn as Matt Badaferrano. I can also be reached uh, via email at matthew.badaferrano at gmail.com. The website for the lab, I can give you a link for. That contains like all of our, our current work and some different work that different students are doing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for hopping on the show and breaking down transportation, modeling, and kind of the current landscape of that. So appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.